0: what's your problem? What's your problem, bro? (laughs) That was a rhetorical question. Have you ever had someone say that to you, or have you ever said that to someone? What's your problem? Come on. Answer. Well, now that you mention it, quite a few things, (laughs) right? Of course, that's not how someone ever is asking that question. They're not ever genuinely interested in what your problems are. You're their problem. That's why they're saying it that way. But we look around and everyone's got an answer to that question when we think of it less in a very small kind of like personal interaction sort of way. And we think about it in a more of a big picture sort of way. Everyone's got an answer. Just fix this. The world would be a better place. People would be better, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it is often like when you walk in, parents. You know what this is like when you walk into your kids' mid-fight, mid-argument. You hear something in the background in your house, and it starts as a dull murmur, and then it rises. 10 decibels at a time, right, until all of a sudden you're like, oh, my goodness, I can't just sit here and pretend that that's not happening anymore, right? And so you rush in before it continues to escalate to the point of, of needing to take someone to the hospital, right? And you're like, I better at least interject before then. And you stop the confusion, and then everyone begins to tell you what the real problem is in the situation, right? And it's never themselves. It's always what someone else was doing that is the cause of whatever the argument was. We've got lots of problems that we face. It's really difficult at times to get down to the bottom of what the real problem is, right? I mean, in those situations with my kids, it's, uh, we had the conversation and I asked the questions, but I'm like, I really can't. It's so hard to pinpoint Where this actually, what the real true problem is here. I don't know. So I just ground everyone. That's what I do. You're all in trouble. (laughs) Because I can do that, I guess. It's confusing. And if we're confused about the problem, uh, then we're bound to be confused about the answer, right? Mm, There are a lot of options out there as far as what the problem is. A big picture in our world, right? There, it could be a societal problem that there are systems and structures in our society that have created and perpetuated this problem and and you got to change the system if you change the system then you solve the problem right and we can't deny we cannot deny that there are very broken and flawed systems in our world right but is that a symptom or, or is that the, a disease is that the, the disease is that is that a problem, or is that the problem? There could be an academic problem, some might say. People lack, you know, they lack proper education. They, if they just knew more, if they were better educated, then they could make better decisions, right decisions. That would solve the problem. And no doubt, education can be beneficial. But if people aren't educated in the truth, that, additional knowledge can sometimes result in positive things and sometimes result in actually more negative things, right? Maybe it's a therapeutic problem that we have. People, they've got these bad feelings, anxiety, anger, depression, etc., etc., and people, they need to be whole, right? We need to help people to be whole, and that would solve the problem. And we would agree that those things are really big issues in our world. They're, they're problems that we face. But again, are they each a problem or are they the problem? The moralistic problem, some might say. These people would say and they would admit that there is a sin problem in the world. There is this problem where people do things that they ought not to and often know they ought not to do, and we need, we need to get people living right. If we could just get them living right, that would solve the problem, and certainly we would agree that we want people to live like Jesus. We want people to live according to the Bible, but even still, there is something missing, I think. Have you ever heard someone say, man, even if Jesus isn't true, I'd still be a Christian because it's just a better way to live. You ever heard someone say that? I've heard, I remember in in high school hearing someone say that. And while there maybe is a sliver of truth in this, I do think my life is better because I follow God's word. I, I, I do think my life has gotten better as I followed God's word better. But not always. And if ultimately Jesus isn't true, then ultimately that living lacks power and substance, and there still this pragmatic approach still has something missing. So for the last two chapters of Romans, Paul has tried to make the real problem clear to us, and that is that we, you and I, are radically sinful people. Do you realize that? You are radically sinful. Without Christ, we are all radically sinful. There is no person who is not corrupt. And there is no part of us that has not been affected in some way by the corruption of sin. But not just that. The real issue The real issue we face, as Paul has described in the last two chapters, is that because of our sinfulness, we are now under God's wrath and judgment. Even if we could correct it from this point on, even if we could make all the right adjustments, we could solve all those little issues, and we could kind of like start fresh and move forward, we would still stand in. Condemned. So to put it simply, the question is this. This is, this is the problem. How can wrong people be made right? How can wrong people be made right? After two chapters, this is the, the question that, that hangs over our heads. The real problem. How can wrong people be made right? Right. And Paul hinted at it back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Back before we realized just how bad the problem actually was, right? Paul said the the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is what reveals God's righteousness. But how? He doesn't he doesn't really define it at that point. Instead, he goes into this. Parentheses telling us the issues that we have, why it's so important. But now, but now he's going to tell us what the gospel is. Now comes the long awaited moment, right? I've often said that the gospel is how God loves and saves rebel sinners through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. That the gospel is how God loves and saves sinners through Christ's life, Death and resurrection. And I think that's a really good, a brief, and understandable definition uh, based off Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. But in our passage today, Paul is going to give us a different, uh, uh, styled, uh, equally true definition of what the gospel is. He's going to give us a much more technical definition that specifically addresses the question how can wrong people be made right? So here's here's the definition in a sentence, and this is the sermon in a sentence. If you get one thing, this is what I want you to get. The gospel, friends, the gospel is justification through faith alone in Christ alone. The gospel is justification through faith alone in Christ alone. Now, you might be thinking, gosh, that sounds a little technical, Cody. It is. Because this passage is a little technical. And this sermon is going to be a little technical because that's what this passage is. So if you have your pen and your paper, you may want to pull that out. There might be some words uh, used and defined uh, as best as I can for you out of this, this passage. So here's the, th- the questions we're going to try to answer. Hopefully this helps us to understand what it means that, justifi- that the gospel is justification through faith alone and Christ alone first question is, by what are we justified? By what are we justified? The second question is, through what are we justified? And the last question is this, what's justification? If you talk about it this whole sermon, what is it anyways? We're going to talk about that. So first, by what are we justified? Our passage last week, it ended with this declaration that the whole world the whole world is accountable to god right we need something to justify us we need something to fix our problem in works of the law by works of the law no human being will be justified in god's sight so we know quite clearly that our works, our deeds, our actions will not or, or, or will always be insufficient to justify us. But then in verse 21, it starts, but now. All I got to say is the Bible has some nice butts in it, okay? But now, the righteousness of God. You can't justify yourself, but God has done something. He has done something. Paul is deliberately, linguistically connecting this idea of the righteousness of God here in this verse, all the way back to the righteousness of God in chapter one, verse 17. He is tying these two things together, okay? He's saying that that I was referring to there, I'm about ready to describe right here. It's the activity of God to save. It says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Paul is declaring a new era in salvation history. Not that that it used to be through works of the law. We've seen that that is insufficient. And he will describe that even pre-Christ, people were saved through faith in uh, in Jesus in a forward-looking way. Rather, what he's saying is that the way in which God brings people into relationship with him used to be through a covenant that was centered around the Mosaic law, and now it centers around the person, Jesus Christ. He's quick to add here that the law wasn't a waste, that the law is not utterly scrapped, but that the law always pointed to Jesus. It's not as if God realized at some point in human history, man, this whole like mosaic law plan that I had, it is not working out very well. Maybe, I'm gonna, maybe I'll shift to plan B. I'll shift to the Jesus plan, and we'll see how that goes. No, Jesus was always the plan. He was always the plan by what are we justified christ alone that's the answer christ alone this manifesting that paul refers to isn't an idea or a thought but a historical event it's not just the idea of jesus but it is what jesus did that we could not do for ourselves and what did jesus do well there are three terms in this passage that I want to draw your attention to and I want to define for you and describe for you. Redemption, propitiation, and justification. We're going to talk about the first two now and we'll talk about the last one at the end, but all of them are connected to the historical events of Jesus' death and how that uh, results in our justification. So redemption, redemption. What is redemption? Redemption is what Jesus does in relationship to us. It describes something that Jesus has done directly in relationship to us. It's a term that's borrowed from the ancient world of commerce, particularly from the ancient world of slavery. When it says in verse 24, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, it's talking about the reality that Jesus has paid the full price to buy us out of slavery. We were enslaved in our sins, and Jesus, having paid that price by his blood, verse 25 says, has released us from that bondage, and now he is our master. It's as if he went to the market, and he said, yeah, I want that one. What's the price? My blood? Okay, here you go. That's the nature of our relationship with Jesus now. You were enslaved in your sin under a terrible master and Christ, by his blood, paid the price to free you from slavery to that master and now he is your master. Simple, perhaps, to understand here. Harder to live out at times. That's what Christ has done you the term propitiation we find in verse 25 it says jesus whom god put forward as propitiation now this is a bit more difficult to explain this is what jesus does in relationship to god on our behalf so redemption is what jesus does in relationship to us propitiation is what jesus does in relationship to god on our behalf if that makes sense Propitiation it simply means to turn away God's wrath. That's probably the, the most simple kind of easy definition that I can give you. To turn away God's wrath. That's what propitiation is. It's a term that's borrowed from the ancient world of religion, actually. The ancient person had some notion that they had done something wrong, and they had some notion that there must be gods that exist. And if those gods exist and they've done something wrong, then those gods must be mad at them. They must have wrath towards them for the wrong things they've done. And so they would go and propitiate, would kill an animal in honor of that god in hopes that that god then would not kill them instead. And these ancient people, they actually were sort of on to something to a certain degree. They knew that there was some sort of problem. The issue, though, with this verse, I think, is that propitiation actually isn't the best translation. I don't think of the idea that the original word in the Greek is trying to communicate. It's not a. It's not a bad. Like turning away God's wrath is part of what that word is trying to communicate, but it's just not. A complete idea. Now, some people have said, well, maybe expiation is the right word that should be used there. Now, that, let me define that for you. That simply means the removal of sins. Maybe that's the right word. But I think that also falls short. And I'd argue, and along with most commentators and most scholars on this verse, that both of those ideas are wrapped up in the actual word that's being used here that what Jesus is doing is turning away God's wrath and, and removing sins. The problem is that the best translation of, of the word would be to translate it as mercy seat or place of atonement, but that just starts to get even more confusing, right? Someone, someone somewhere along the way thought, well, people would understand propitiation better than that. It was like, No, I don't, actually. (laughs) I don't understand either of these words, right? Someone give me a dictionary. Here's here's why. The, The only other occurrence of this word in the New Testament occurs in Hebrews, and it very specifically is referring to the mercy seat. It's calling Jesus the mercy seat. And when the Old Testament is translated into Greek, wherever it's talking about the mercy seat, This is the word that's used. So what the heck is the the mercy seat, right? Like, what is that? You you remember the Israelites. uh, Let me take kind of rewind the clock a little bit. You remember the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, uh, having left Egypt, heading to the promised land, and God gives them the law, right? We talked about that earlier, the law, the Mosaic law. Moses goes uh, up on Mount Sinai, and he gets all these laws, and he gets the Ten Commandments on the tablets and all of that, right? And he gives instructions for how to build the tabernacle, and they build this tabernacle. And inside the tabernacle is this innermost area, this most holy place. And, and inside of that, God has them build this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. You know that from Indiana Jones, right? Right, okay. So we're on the same page now. I'm sure that's a really, really good description of what that is. Probably not. At any rate. So inside the Ark of the Covenant is the Ten Commandments, a couple other things. And on top, of the ark the lid is what's called the mercy seat and there's some cherubim that are there and their wings are over the top of it and above the mercy seat is where god manifests his presence among his people in this most holy place okay are you starting to catch the importance of this this place this thing once a year the high priest would go into the most holy place and he would take one goat and he would kill this goat and he would sprinkle the blood of the goat on the mercy seat to make atonement for the people's sins. And then immediately afterwards, you know what he would do immediately afterwards? Get this, this is crazy. He would kill, no, he wouldn't kill actually. He would lay his hands on another goat and he would confess the sins of the people on that goat, over that goat. And then they would let that goat go into the wilderness, away from the people. That their sins would be atoned for, would be, that, that God's wrath would be propitiated, turned away by the killing of this goat, and then that, that their sins would be removed from their presence as this goat takes them away, symbolically, right? It was only temporary. Every single year, they had to do this. And even, and, even, and even then, it was still understood that it was in some way insufficient. It was done in faith, knowing that one day, one would come that would finally and completely atone that would finally and completely turn God's wrath away, that would finally and completely remove those sins far from God's people, and that person is Jesus. Jesus is the mercy seat. Jesus is the place in which God's people actually interact with his presence. Actually, his presence is manifested in him on the cross. God has always restricted saving access to his relational presence. And Jesus is now our true mercy seat, our true place of atonement, where propitiation and expiation happen, where where God's wrath is turned away from us and our sins are forgiven and removed. By what are we justified? Christ alone. Christ alone can do it his work only. But through what are we justified? The answer here is faith alone. Paul says in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is is why I started with Christ alone. Because it's not merely having faith in something that matters. It's not merely just like, I just got all this, this faith. I'm just mustering up all of this belief That's good, right? No. Possessing faith is not salvific. The critical aspect of faith always is its object. The thing in which you have faith in. Like like if you got like a busted up, broken down car and you pull up and you're like, hey, Cody, hop in. Let's take a road trip across the country. I'm going to go like, like, I can't just go, oh, I really believe this car is going to make it, so we're good to go. No. The object matters. I do not have faith in your busted up car to get us across. Let's rent a car instead. I have faith in that car. Not this one. If merely having faith in something is good enough, Friends, then all we've done is made a new law, haven't we? We've just made a new law. We've just shifted the law from doing all of these deeds to having all of this faith. It's become about us again, a new work that we must do to be saved. But faith depends on its object, and the only right object of faith is Jesus Christ. God's righteousness is restricted then to only those who have faith in Christ. But then it says this. It says, to all who believe. This righteousness is for everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ. No one who has this faith is kept from God's righteousness. There is no other standard in addition that matters. It's not Jesus plus something else. It's not Jesus plus being born into a Christian family. It's not Jesus plus looking a certain way. It's not Jesus plus doing enough good things. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's Christ alone. I just made it into three words. Paul gives his reasoning in verses 22b and 23, right? Which is essentially a summary of the last two chapters in one sentence. And I know what you're thinking. Why did we take four sermons on it if you could write it in one sentence? Sorry. Paul should have led with that. The point is this. In regards to our standing before a righteous God, there is no difference between one person and another. On their own, I want you to get this. In terms of, in regards to our standing before a righteous God, there is no difference between one person and another. Every earthly category that we come up with, and we come up with lots of earthly categories, right? No matter. Everyone needs faith, and faith alone in Christ alone. My, my kids' favorite phrase some days is this, no fair, no fair. Can we do this? No, no fair. Silas, all the time, no fair, no fair. Like, what? Everything everything can't be no fair, right? It's like when uh, in the middle of the day, right? So I work from home generally, unless I'm at the coffee shop, I'm at home. My kids are at home. Uh, and so I might come upstairs in the middle of the day. You know, I've been working hard, and you need a break sometimes. So I might get in the cabinet and uh, pull out those um, Aldi brand, like, Girl Scout cookie knockoffs with the peanut butter on the inside, and they're way better than Girl Scout cookies. You know what I'm talking about? Those are delicious, okay? That is like, the, it's bad for me, okay? So I might pull that open and go like, whew, I need a break from thinking and studying and writing sermons and, and eat one of those cookies. And my kids, of course, what do they say? Dad, can we have a cookie? Can we have a cookie? You're having a cookie. Can we have a cookie? And what do I say? No. No, you cannot. These are my cookies. And what do they say? No fair. Why do you get one? Right? And the answer, of course, is I bought them. That's why I get them. When you buy your own cookies, then you can have your cookie whenever you want. For it to be no fair that they don't get one would imply that they are in some way owed a cookie. But they are not owed a cookie. I don't own a cookie. No one owns a cookie. They've done nothing to earn a cookie. There is nothing that I promised them a cookie for doing. I get to have a cookie. Because I did a job and I earned a paycheck and I went, well, Amanda went and bought the cookies for me, let's be honest. So her and I can get a cookie, but they don't. In fact, I could sit here with them right in front of me and eat this entire box, this entire sleeve of cookies and not feel bad about it for one second that I didn't give a single one to them because they are owed none. perfectly and completely fair. Additionally, I will say, I'm really belaboring this story, if I do give them a cookie, that is what we call a gift, right? It is grace upon them that I would take my cookie that I earned, that I purchased, and I would bequeath it to them that they could Partake in the deliciousness of the peanut butter chocolate cookie. It is freely given. I am not obligated by anything in them to give them that cookie. If withholding a cookie is not fair, this is what I want you to get. If withholding a cookie is not fair, then it must mean also that if I gave the cookie, it is no longer a gift. It is no longer grace. It must. It cannot be any other way. Thus, when we say it must be by faith, we're saying that there's no other distinction between people that matters to salvation, that no one has done anything, no one has done anything to be owed salvation, to be owed salvation being justified by Christ. Everyone has this justification that comes by Christ through faith. It is given as a totally and completely free gift. If Jesus said if, if someone is not saved, no one can say no fair. Actually, that is quite fair. Paul has made that quite clear from the middle of chapter one to the middle of chapter three. So, Friends, don't fall into this trap here of thinking that the fact that we possess faith or our ability to have faith has some, in some way saved us or has in some way helped or, or, or progressed us towards salvation. Free gifts of grace have no cause or merit or warrant in the person who receives them. They come wholly and completely and utterly from the work of the giver, or else it is something other than grace. We cannot say, because I have such resolute belief that my dad will give me a cookie, he will see that belief and be impressed by it and be persuaded to give me the cookie that I so, so desire. This attitude will only and always result in pride, when our spiritual lives are going well, and a desperate lack of assurance when things are not going well. Rather, we're like a child who comes to our father, simply asks with nothing nothing to offer in return, merely trusting in the parent's generosity, trusting on the basis of, Their character, his character, not our character or anything in us. The British pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said it this way in his commentary in Romans, and I think this is pretty good, so I wanted to share it with you. He says this, the man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at what he is now, and he does not look at what he hopes to be, he looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work and rests on that alone. That's faith. We've come to it, right? The gospel is justification through faith alone in Christ alone. But what in the world is justification? Justification. When we look at this passage, you see these words, righteous, and just, and justifier. uh, All of those words, they come from the exact same Greek root word. They're all kind of related semantically, right? But if justification has to do with, being righteous and we already know that that we can't make ourselves righteous we can't just like do that and muster that up then how are we to be justified does god make us righteous is that what happens are we made righteous in an ethical or moral sense well well i'd love to be made righteous i'm sure you'd love to be made righteous too but the reality is is you know that you still sin and i know that i still sin right so i've not been made righteous not in a moral or ethical sense, not completely sanctification, right? That's the process by which the Spirit helps us and and moves us and makes us more and more like Christ, more and more righteous, those who are already justified, so what does this justification mean? Justification is a term that's borrowed from the ancient legal world. In the first century, justification had to do with a judge acquitting one accused and declaring them to be in right standing before the law. Justification then is God declaring us to be righteous before him. Do you see the difference? If God is the court, he has acquitted us of all charges. All charges that can and would have been brought against us, and has now made us—he—he he, uh, has declared us, I mean, to be in right standing with the court of God. God, but don't make the mistake of thinking this is God pretending that those sins didn't happen. That's not what I'm describing. God doesn't just go like, oh, I'll just pretend y'all didn't sin. Okay. It's full recognition of all charges and full acquittal. That's justification. Think of it in comparison to what would otherwise happen, which would be condemnation, right? Condemnation isn't a judge making someone guilty. No, that person's sins, that person's wrongs made them guilty. The judge doesn't make you guilty. The judge just declares you guilty. Justification isn't God pretending sins didn't happen or making us morally perfect, but declaring us to be in right standing despite who we've been and what we have done. That sounds awesome, right? how can it be? How could a judge, a good and right and just judge, possibly see all of those things, all of those charges, and then just declare us to be okay, declare us to be right? How is that possible? It's based on the redemption and the mercy seating of Jesus. By his redemption, we were bought out of that slavery to sin. By his atonement, we've been forgiven and God's wrath has been turned away. The result is verse 26. Do you see this? This, I think, is the most powerful verse in all of the book of Romans and maybe the whole Bible. It's just mind-blowing to me when you begin to think about what this means. That through Christ, God maintains his justice perfectly and justifies his people. That God, through Christ, could somehow be perfectly and completely just in all of His dealings, and yet at the same time, somehow save us. That God doesn't ignore sin or leave it unpunished, but He maintains His justice and His rightness. No one can accuse Him of being morally wrong. No one can accuse Him of not writing every single thing, at the same time, because Christ takes that punishment on himself for us, he can declare us to be right, acquitting us of all charges. We, friends, listen, we don't need to sit scared that on that day, we'll get there and go, nope, that was insufficient. Neither, Do we have to sit here and pretend that we are better than we actually are? Knowing deep down in our heart, oh crud, oh crud, oh crud. God is perfectly just and yet the justifier of his people. Additionally, additionally, he's found a way through faith to apply this even to those who died prior to Christ. What seemed like God withholding justice or letting past sins go unpunished was actually the work of Christ being applied on credit to people. We get it on debit now. They got it on credit. I'm crazy. A plan like this could only be devised and executed in the mysterious Wisdom and power of God. No, I don't, I don't know how anyone could come up with this. So what does that mean for us? Two things. Two things this morning. We have every reason for gratitude. We have every reason for gratitude, for immense, overwhelming, uncontrollable gratitude. R.C. Sproul, I think it was R.C. Sproul that said it like this. He said, we've contributed the only thing we've contributed to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary, right? That's such a good line. And yet we are saved. And, and, and we, we have every reason, friends, to be just bursting with gratitude, no matter what our, well, no our circumstances today. The other thing is this. We have every reason for hope. We have every reason for hope, particularly for those who are not saved. And here's why. If there's no distinction, if everyone is under God's wrath, and yet God graces some with faith, then anyone can be justified. Anyone. If you can be saved, if, listen, if God can save you, he can save anyone. I know what you're thinking. Well, but I'm, but I'm, but I'm. No, you are a sinner under God's wrath until Jesus did a work in your life. If you can be saved, anyone can be saved. That person you are thinking of, that you desperately wish would know Christ, that that you desperately wish would know the power of his love and of salvation, that person that you think is so far away. This passage makes it really clear. No one is more and no one is less savable than anyone else. God can save them. If he can save you, he can save them. And that, friends, should give us every reason for hope. Every reason. And so this is what I want to do. I want to end in a different way than we typically do. So I'm rolling the dice here. We're going to try something we've never tried. I don't think that I can remember. I want to take time right now before communion for prayer. Prayer for two things. Prayer of praise and gratitude to God for what He has done in your life and justifying you. We are just stopped to think about that reality and to thank God for that. And then particularly I want to I want to do this. I want to pray for those in your life who do not know Christ yet. Those people that you think, oh, it's not even even worth praying for that person because they're so far away from Jesus. They'll never... No, that's the exact person that we ought to be praying for. It's the exact kind of person. That is the only kind of person that Jesus saves. The people who are desperately and completely lost I want you to understand that. That's the only kind of person that Jesus saves because that's the only kind of person there is. I want to take some time to pray for them. And, and, and this is what I want you to do. If you, if you, uh, if there's someone else here who knows that person as well, I want you to actually just go and pray with them for that person. Your spouse, maybe your spouse or, or a friend, maybe you have a mutual friend and there's someone you go like, God, ah, I know that person does not know Jesus. Maybe it's your spouse and you have a, uh, someone in your family or someone you know, a neighbor. going to take like five minutes to pray for them. So let's, let's do that. And then, and then in, a, in a couple minutes, I will just, I'll pray and then we'll take communion.